Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. While you're looking there, when Ricky said, let's all sing like Tangina, I thought, the only way I can do that, she can hit notes that few people can hit. I can too, you just don't want to hear the notes I hit. I'm hitting notes that haven't been created yet. So thank you, Tangina. Let me read just the first part of this passage. We're going to get through verse 9 prayerfully. And uh, let me read through verse 6 of Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 and following. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and sat him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble who believe in me, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. As I was preparing this message, I was reminded of a time that I preached in Shawboro, North Carolina. Which one of the cool things about that is, since my last name's Shaw, I thought it was really cool to preach in Shawboro, North Carolina. But I was sitting on the front row, ready to get up to preach, and while they were doing music, the worship leader was leading the worship. This little girl came from the back and walked down the aisle, and I didn't really pay attention to her until she got about to this front pew, and she came over and just stood at the front, started playing with the stuff on the table. And my first thought was, where are her parents? Why isn't somebody taking care of this little girl? And finally, she just kind of reached her arms up during the music. And it wasn't that she understood worship and she was doing that. It's just she wanted that music guy to pick her up. And it's times like that that I sit on the front row and kind of hear God, don't hear an audible voice, but it's what it seemed to be saying to me is, Robert, I wish we were all like that. I wish people would come to me with that simple childlike innocence, that simple childlike faith, and even that simple childlike ability to not really care what other people think. This girl wanted to be at the front and worship, so she came forward. (laughs) So Jesus is asked a question by his disciples, and he uses a little child as an illustration. Just to give you context, I'm preaching through Matthew. We've heard Jesus several times, and he's going to say it again. He's going to say, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Jesus got all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. He went over to a mountain, which is where the transfiguration takes place. He's headed towards Jerusalem now. He's turned, and after three years of ministry with his disciples, he's headed to Jerusalem. And here's what he told him he's going to do. I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. Apparently, from the response of the disciples, all they heard was, we're going to Jerusalem and we're going to die. And I think that's why Peter tried to come up with some alternative plans. First thing he said is, no, that's not going to happen that way. God forbid it would happen that way. And then even during the transfiguration, when this glorious event is taking place, Peter's over there going, hey, let me build some tabernacles for you and your friends. Because in Peter's mind is, if we stay here, we're not going to die. But that wasn't the plan. So now we believe that Jesus is in Capernaum, he's in a house, and we see this story recorded in Matthew's Gospel, but also Mark and Luke, and so I'm going to pick up a little bit of understanding from Luke, because before they ask the question, 
we find out from Luke and Mark, they had already been arguing. So Jesus knew, maybe he overheard, or maybe he just divinely knew, they had been arguing over who's the greatest. I wonder how that looked. You know, 12 disciples. I'm his favorite. I'm the greatest. You heard what he said to me the other day? <laughs> I mean, Peter, Peter could have done that. Peter could have said, hey, he's talked about, you know, the foundation of the kingdom. And then they said, yeah, Peter, do you remember what he said right after that? He told you to get thee behind me, Satan. You don't remember that part, do you? We forgot that. I don't know that it was Peter, but they were arguing. And, you know, you get this. They have just heard Jesus say, I'm going to be put to death. Good news is he's going to rise from the dead. They missed that. But in the midst of that kind of environment and climate, they're heading toward Jerusalem. They're arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And I don't know if they were kind of like the rest of the crowd who thought the kingdom's here now and we're about to establish this earthly kingdom. That wasn't God's plan. That was to come later. And it is coming. And I would imagine they asked the question assuming he's going to name one of us. Let's just get it over with. Who gets the trophy? So who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? In fact, it amazes me if you look at Luke's gospel in chapter 22, verse 24. We don't have to take time. We don't need to turn there. Just jot that down. Even at the Last Supper where they've had the wine and the bread symbolizing the body and the blood of Christ, even at the Last Supper, according to Luke 22, 24, they're still arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And before we cast too many aspersions to the disciples who just don't get it, we don't get it either. In fact, not only did they argue at the Last Supper, one of their moms, sons of Zebedee, comes up to Jesus and said, hey, grant that my sons could sit on your left and your right in the kingdom. Now, we understand moms taking care of their kids, looking out for them and all that, but they obviously didn't understand the kingdom that was coming. They didn't understand the cup you had to drink to even be in that kingdom and what was coming upon them. And so Jesus asked them in Luke's gospel, hey, what have you guys been talking about? Here it's just they come to him with a question, Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that phrase, kingdom of heaven, Matthew uses it 32 times in the book of Matthew. And the reason is because in the Jewish culture, they didn't say the name of God. When they read the Old Testament, in places in the Old Testament where it had God's name, they would substitute because they thought His name is so holy, we won't even speak it. And so Matthew used, instead of the kingdom of God, he used the kingdom of heaven. It means the same thing. So they've asked the question, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus doesn't directly answer their question. But what a, what a great picture he gives to answer the question. He calls a child himself. This is not the normal Greek word for child. This is the word meaning little child. It could occur to infants. I kind of got the picture it was probably a toddler. Now, is there anything great about toddlers? They call it the terrible twos for a reason. I've had four toddlers in my house. Fortunately, they've all grown up, and we all survived. If you take something away from a toddler, what will they do? Two things. They will cry, and they may bite you. 
So when we talk about children and the way Jesus is going to compare them, he's not saying, I want you to act like little kids. I've often wondered sometimes spiritually for people who've been Christians for a long time, but they've never grown up. They're kind of still hanging out in the nursery, fighting over the building blocks and the trucks, you know. So that's not, don't, don't go there with this illustration. But they've asked who's the greatest. Jesus brings in their culture certainly one of the least. And sits this child right in their midst. And I'm assuming the child was able to walk to get up there. But folks, you got to get, this was a little child. In Jewish culture, you didn't get any more insignificant than that. In fact, I'm kind of glad that's changed in our culture. I remember, I'm as old as dirt, so some of you aren't going to identify with this. I'm old. I remember an uncle one time saying something at dinner because I'd said something. He said, children are to be seen, not heard. Anybody ever heard that? Children be seen, not heard. I'm kind of thinking, well, why'd you have kids then? That's the way you felt about him. And I don't know, maybe I was being obnoxious or something, but he said, children are to be seen, not heard. That's kind of changed. Children sometimes are a little too heard. We were sitting at a restaurant eating one time. This kid was just banging on his little lap thing there. You know, he's in a high chair, a little... You know, and it's like nobody could hear it but me. I finally asked the waitress, are y'all having construction in the kitchen? She said, what do you mean? I said, because I'm hearing some banging. It was at the next table. It's amazing how parents can just eat as if it's not happening. I don't blame the kids. I blame the parents. But Jesus takes one of these and puts it in the midst of the disciples and basically says, you're worried about who's going to be great in the kingdom? First thing you ought to ask is, am I even in the kingdom? Because Jesus says to them, unless you are converted and become like one of these, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot in those two lines right there. They've asked who's going to be the greatest. Jesus says, truly I say to you. And when Jesus said truly, it meant you better perk up your ears. Because I'm about to lay some truth on you. Truly, unless you are converted. What does it mean to be converted? The word literally means to turn. It means to twist, to turn around, to reverse course. If you've been coming to the chapel for long, you've heard me talk about this. I love testimonies after youth camp. I've heard this more than one time. Some kid will say, I went to youth camp, God got a hold of my life. He turned my life around 360 degrees. And I have to think about that. All right, now wait a minute. You're walking away from God. You had a holy moment at camp. You're still walking away from God. That's 360. That is not what converted is. Converted is a 180. What does that mean? It means you've turned your back on where you were going. And you turn back to who you were walking away from, and that's God. You've heard me talk, if you've been here before, about the bumper sticker. Bumper sticker. Used to see a lot of them. Don't see them anymore. It used to say, if you're on the wrong road, God allows you turns. That sounds good until you think about what that's saying. If you're on the wrong road, and you make a U-turn, you're still on the wrong road. It needs to say, if you're heading in the wrong direction, God allows you turns, or If you're on the wrong road, get off that road and turn towards God. So that's what Jesus is saying when he says, 
listen, you're wanting to know about who's going to be the greatest. Let's just talk about whether you're even going to be there or not. Because if you're not converted, your birthright isn't getting you into the kingdom of heaven. I've also heard testimonies. I love this one. I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a brick home. And blessings on your parents. That is a great thing if you're raised in a Christian home. But there are a lot of church people who are banking on their salvation based on whether they were raised in a Christian home or not. The fact your parents are going to heaven doesn't transfer to you. So Jesus says you must be converted means you have turned around. So he's saying you've been walking away from God. Unless something happens in your life that turns you towards God, you're going to keep walking away from God and will spend eternity separated from Him. Unless you're converted, and then Jesus says, and become like this child. That, that's the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John 3. What must I do? Jesus says, you've got to be born again. That's radical. So is this verb that he uses here. And it's interesting. It's a passive verb, which means this. You don't do this. This is something God's got to do. You've got to turn to God and be converted by God. So let me just be plain. If you're here this morning and that's never happened, you've missed the kingdom of God. What needs to happen in your life is a time to say, I admit that I need a Savior. And that's humbling. And he's going to address that. Because not only does he say, truly you must be converted and become like little children. You're born outside. You need to get in. Whoever then humbles himself as this child. He's going to be a part of the kingdom. We don't like that word. We live in a culture where nobody wants to humble themselves. And throughout the New Testament, Peter says it, Paul says it, in this case, Jesus says it. You humble yourself. God can do it if He has to. Don't wait on God to humble you. We're commanded to humble ourselves, which literally means to make yourself low. Make less of yourself. It's what John, the baptizer, when his disciples came and said, this guy's getting all the attention. And John said, that's the way it's supposed to be. I must decrease so that he can increase. Make less of yourself. And Jesus is still using this little kid to describe that. I'm just going to be honest. We, we struggle with humility. I'll give you a couple of examples in my life. One, I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. I'd gone on to become more of a full-time evangelist where I traveled full-time. For, and I did that for 10 years. And I ran into one of my former students. He was one of my youth and we were at the same event, and he asked me how things were going. For, for 10 years when I traveled, I, I basically was dependent on offerings and people that supported our ministry. He said, how are things going? And I didn't mention anything to him about the fact we were struggling financially. But he gave me a check. And I said, no, you don't need to do that. And here's what God said, who do you think you are? That's because of arrogance that you don't receive something. You're thinking, I'm your daddy. I was about to rob him of a blessing of doing something God told him to do. And I'm glad that occasionally God will take out the two-by-four 
and get my attention. Second time, when I started a ministry where I, I travel full time, one of the first, first pieces of advice somebody gave me is, you, you need to get a really good brochure. So I went and got this brochure. To say that I was proud of it would be an understatement. I was proud of it. I couldn't wait to show it to people. I had just gotten it, and I was headed to a youth pastor event in Atlanta, Georgia. And I walked in the room. There were several hundred youth pastors in this room, and in the back of the room were tables that were set up, and they were there for people like me that wanted to put brochures out and tell people about their ministry. And when I walked through with that brochure, this is what God seemed to say. What are you doing? You're so worried about having enough speaking opportunities. You're so worried about getting your name out there that you're more proud of that brochure than you are the ministry I've called you to. And I had to walk back to my room and stick those brochures that I was so proud of back in the room. And other people passing brochures out, it wasn't a problem. God didn't tell them not to. But he told me to. Now, I hadn't always got it right. Those were two examples where I got it right. But God had to get my attention to say, Robert, you're thinking a little too much of yourself. Who do you think you are? In fact, the Bible says God gives grace to the humble. Folks, that's good news. That's good news. So if you're on the subject, you want to talk about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, let's just deal with the first question, and that is, are you going to get there? Because I've got to tell you this, in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest are there going to be those who have no consciousness of being great. In fact, some of the greatest people serving God today you've never heard of. I sat in the living room of a group of missionaries in Guatemala, and I thought, I don't, I don't never heard of these people. And yet they were doing incredible things for the kingdom of God, and they didn't care that anybody else knew their name. So that's how to enter the kingdom of God quickly. How do we treat kingdom people? Jesus continues to, to talk. He says, anyone who receives this child in my name, it's like you're doing it to me. And, and I just got to tell you, the culture of that day was if this kid was 18 months, 2 years old, older than that, however, they didn't consider them significant at all. And Jesus is saying, no, this is how you have to treat people like you were treating me. And that gets tough. How do you treat people that are hard to love? So my prayer has become, and I have to pray this often, God, help me see people the way you see people. Because God loves them. There's some people that are just annoying. And God says, don't be annoyed by them. I love them. And so treat people and pray that prayer. God, if I'm going to receive people, like I received this little child. And you've got to hear the rest of this passage. We're not talking about only people who are two years old. We're talking about spiritual children of God that have come into the kingdom. We're not using the word church yet, but Matthew, Matthew 18 is a lot of teaching about how we're going to treat people in the church, which is about to be established on planet Earth. Jesus had already told them, hey, the gates of hell can't come against my church. And so he's telling us how to treat people in the kingdom of heaven, how to treat people in the church. Not only do we need to receive them like we would Jesus, because I promise you if Jesus walked in, you're going to have a different attitude. So treat people like you would if he walked in. 
And then he says a warning. Anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, what is he talking about? He's saying if you're causing one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for you that a heavy millstone was tied around your neck. Let me unpack that a little bit. To stumble is a word that literally meant set a snare or a trap. Anybody that would cause one of these young believers to walk into a trap that is going to trap them into sin, it'd be better to tie, and it doesn't just say millstone, it says heavy millstone. There were household millstones that you could operate with your hands. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind that took a donkey to turn it. Hundreds of pounds. And Jews knew Romans occasionally used this as a form of execution. To take you out in a boat to the middle of the water. Tie a big stone around your neck and cast you in it. What's going to happen? You're going to drown. What a horrible way to go. So rather than leading one of these little ones into temptation, causing them to stumble, it would be better to put a millstone around your neck. Let me just share a few thoughts. There's a lot of these. I'm just going to give you three this morning. How could we cause somebody to stumble? Well, one is just direct temptation. Just directly, overtly leading somebody into temptation, either by our actions and we encourage them to participate in it. So direct temptation. A couple of examples. Eve. Adam and Eve standing right there together. Eve sins by eating the fruit. God's told them not to. Then what does she do? Turns and give it to her husband. He wasn't out playing golf. He was standing right with her. Aaron. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. What's Aaron doing back at camp? Melting gold, forming it into a calf, and encouraged the nation of Israel to worship it. Now, none of you are ever going to do that. But you've got to ask yourself the question, is there any way that I am directly leading somebody to stumble? Second way is just setting a bad example. Somebody that knows you're a believer, if they were to follow you, would they get closer to Christ or further away? My kids called me on this one one time. I, I grew up, again, I told you I'm old. I grew up in a generation where we didn't have seat belts. Anybody remember that? Cars without seat belts. Just, they just weren't there. Didn't think about that. I remember as a kid, I would stand on the seat beside my father and hold on to his ear as we drove down the road. Now, nobody's going to recommend you do that today. It's dangerous. If we had had an accident, I would have gone out the windshield with part of his ear. So seatbelts are a good thing. Problem is, I was used to putting a seatbelt on in my car, but I was driving our van, my wife's car at the time, and I forgot to put my seatbelt on. From the back row, I hear, Dad, you're not setting an example. And my daughter said, oh, yes, he is. It's just a bad one. So I put my seatbelt on. So it's possible just through your example that you'd lead somebody to stumble. I told you there's a bunch of these. I'm just going to hit one more. You can even, through flaunting your liberties, cause people to stumble. Paul even put it this way. I have a freedom to do things that I choose not to do because I don't want weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. Here's the problem. It might be okay for you because you're free in Christ. But if this person over here is convicted that it's wrong and they do it, it's sin. Because their heart 
has acknowledged, I'm doing something I know I shouldn't be doing. So be careful, either through direct temptation, through bad example, or through flaunting liberties, that we don't lead people to sin. Last thing, I'm going to do this quickly, just the last three verses. He pronounces a woe about stumbling blocks. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. What's Jesus saying? When we are zealous for holiness, it will affect the way we treat other people. It will affect the way we lead other people. And we need to be that serious about holiness. If there's something in our life that's causing us to sin, to stumble, to trip up, get rid of it. People say, you think Jesus literally meant cut your hand off? Here's the problem. If it's your heart that's the issue and you cut your hand off, you still got a problem with your heart. But it needs to be that serious of an issue. That if you're being scandalized in an area, you're being tripped up in an area, you need to treat it with that kind of seriousness, that kind of zealousness. So let me ask you this. Is there any habit, any situation, any relationship, or anything else that's causing you to stumble, or if somebody follows you, would cause them to stumble? If so, get rid of it. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and to acknowledge, to recognize that you're headed towards the cross when you deliver this message. And the church is about to be established. And so, God, we're all part of the kingdom in that way. So, God, for believers in this place, may this be a fresh word that we'd be zealous about our holiness and our commitment to you. We examine ourselves. And Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day that they turn from the way they were headed. They are converted. And they're born into the kingdom of heaven. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.